1: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. My name is Michael Ian Black. I am your reader, your host, your friend, your confidant, maybe your pen pal. I don't know who I am to you. But I know who you are to me. You are my best friend. You you may be thinking, who, me? But I'm I'm just a humble listener of Obscure. No. No. You're so much more to me than that. And because of that, I am thankful. And it is. A week of thanks here in the wilds of Connecticut. It is Thanksgiving week as I record this. Yesterday was Thanksgiving Day. I visited family, uh, my brother's family, and uh, we did all the traditional Thanksgiving stuff, including stuffing. And We hung around and we ate food and we played pinball because he's got a pinball machine. And it was fabulous. And he lives very close. So the commute was easy. We talked about the theater because one of his sons is interested in the theater. We talked about the high school production of Les Misérables. Le which uh, my family saw at the local high school. It's a production I had mentioned during the end of last week's episode. And guys, I got to tell you, if you're wondering how a bunch of high school kids can sing the operetta Les Miserables, the answer is fabulously. It was just great. And you think to yourself watching these kids, 16, 17, 18 years old, well, You know, some of these kids may have a future in the showbiz. And how nice that they have that option. How nice for them that they can dream like that. There's a song in Les Miserables about dreaming. I dreamed a dream of days gone by. Well, these kids are are dreaming dreams of days ahead, I guess. And Jude Fowley, as we begin this week's episode of Obscure, is continuing to have his own dreams diminished though they might be. But at least there's still dreams. There's still some hope for Jude as he prepares to travel to Melchester where he is going to hopefully enter the theological college and hopefully bone his cousin, although he knows he should not do that. But it is Sue Bridehead who has um, encouraged him one could say, summoned him in a sort of subtle way to join her in Melchester. Now, we don't know why exactly she has traveled to Melchester. She has been vague about her own doings since Jude left Christminster, but she seemed optimistic about her own future. It has caused in Jude some optimism. He's going to go there. He's going to get his degree in HVAC or something because it's like a community college. And he's going to go be a, a candy striper of sorts at a college. And that will be enough for him, he thinks. And because it is a festive season here in the wilds of Connecticut and there in Mary Green, where he is at the present, we begin... With the word Christmas. Christmas had come and passed, and Sue had gone to the Melchester Normal School. That's a very good name for any school. Just call it a normal school. I don't know what the history of that is like in England, but if, you know, my son's going to college next year, if he got into, like, you know, the Connecticut Normal School, I would just laugh and laugh and laugh. Then again, what happens if you get rejected from the Connecticut Normal School? The time was just the worst in the year for Jude to get into new employment. And he had written suggesting to her that he should postpone his arrival for a month or so till the days had lengthened. She had acquiesced so readily (laughs) that he wished he had not proposed it. (laughs) He's like, maybe I shouldn't come. She's like, yeah, you probably shouldn't. (laughs) Why? I guess we're going to find out. She evidently did not much care about him, though she had never once reproached him for his strange conduct in coming to her that night. And his silent disappearance. Neither had she ever said a word about her relations with Mr. Phillotson. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pose a theory here. It can't be right. I don't think this theory is right because I don't feel like she'd be going into school normal or otherwise if my theory is correct. But she's been so vague. She didn't say a word about her relations with Phillotson. He's like, well, maybe I should postpone a few months. She's like, yeah, good idea. Is she preggers? Is she Preggers? Did Phillotson knock her up and she ran away? I don't know. I'm going to guess not. That just doesn't seem likely. But let's find out. Suddenly, however, quite a passionate letter arrived from Sue. Ooh. She was quite lonely and miserable, she told him. She hated the place she was in. It was worse than the ecclesiastical designers, worse than anywhere. She felt utterly friendless. Could he come immediately? Though when he did come, she would only be able to see him at limited times, the rules of the establishment she found herself in being strict to a degree." It was Mr. Phillotson who had advised her to come there and she wished she had never listened to him. Okay. So we're getting a little clarity on the situation. I don't think she's pregnant, but she's gone there to Melchester under Phillotson's advice. And he said, go there, you know, you're going to learn how to be a teacher. She was like, all right, I'll go do that. But there's some some mystery going on between her and Phillotson, and what's going on. And then so... The way a lot of people do, Uh, you know, she's got this friend in Jude. He's an old friend. He's not somebody new and exciting. And she kind of brushes him off because she's in this new place with these new people. And then suddenly she's like, wait a minute, I'm in this new place. I don't know anybody and I'm miserable. So, hey, old friend, can you come and visit me? And can you do so under my conditions and under my rules? If you come, like... You know, I'll only be able to see you when I say I can see you. And we know what Jude's going to do. Jude's like a little puppy. He just wants her affection. He wants her love. And if she has to beat him every once in a while, so be it. He'll take the beating phillotson's suit was not exactly prospering evidently and jude felt unreasonably glad suit meaning i guess his courtship of her he packed up his things and went to melchester with a lighter heart than he had known for months this being the turning over a new leaf this being the turning over a new leaf, he duly looked about for a temperance hotel. <laughs> Meaning, I guess, a, a hotel where there, and there's no alcohol allowed. I mean, you know, Jude treats himself like he's some sot. As far as we know, he's basically gotten drunk two or three times in his entire life. Yeah, he was hanging out at the bar and whatever. But I mean, Jude's not an alcoholic. Jude is just a guy who was miserable and sought to relieve his misery in booze. Don't we all do that? I mean, I probably drink, I don't know, a quart of Jack a day. Am I an alcoholic? Obviously not. And found a little establishment of that description, meaning a temperance hotel, in the street leading from the station. When he had had something to eat, he walked out into the dull winter light over the town bridge and turned the corner towards the close. The close is capitalized. I don't know what that means. I mean, it's a place. The day was foggy and standing under the walls of the most graceful architectural pile in England, he paused and looked up. Oh, so maybe the close is the most graceful architectural pile in England. And and remember, Hardy himself is a, is an architect. The lofty building was visible as far as the roof ridge. Above, the dwindling spire rose more and more remotely till its apex was quite lost in the mist drifting across it. The lamps now began to be lighted and turning to the west front, he walked round. He took it as a good omen that numerous blocks of stone were lying about, which signified that the cathedral was undergoing restoration or repair to a considerable extent. It seemed to him, full of the superstitions of his beliefs, that this was an exercise of forethought on the part of a ruling power that he might find plenty to do in the art he practiced while waiting for a call to higher labors. And, you know, Jude himself, he's attempting to do his own restoration or repair to a considerable extent. Why else is he there, except for that restoration or repair of his own soul, and the higher labors, the ecclesiastical labors to which he is called and continue to be tugged towards, he uh, can only be affected by the manual labors uh, to, to which he is trained, and he sees these blocks of stones and he's like, ah, oh, good. And maybe I'll get some work here, I'll make some money, and I'll enter community college. Then a wave of warmth came over him as he thought how near he stood to the bright-eyed, vivacious girl with the broad forehead and pile of dark hair above it. The girl with the kindling glance, daringly soft at times, something like that of the girls he had seen in engravings from paintings of the spanish school she was here actually in this close in one of the houses confronting this very west facade he went down the broad gravel path towards the building it was an ancient edifice of the 15th century Once a palace, now a training school with mullioned and transomed windows and a courtyard in front shut in from the road by a wall. Yes, we are familiar with these shut in walls, these courtyards with the doors shut, aren't we, Jude? I mean, that's all we did in Christminster was look at locked doors. All we did was look at walls. All we did was say, well, why can't I come in? Because you're nothing, boy, you're nothing. That's why. And he's confronted with another one, but he thinks he can get into this one. He thinks he can open that door. Jude, in fact, in the next sentence, Jude opened the gate and went up to the door through which on inquiring for his cousin, he was gingerly admitted to a waiting room. And in a few minutes, she came. So he's just walked right in. What's inside that gate? We're going to get there in just a minute this holiday season earwolf wants to spread some cheer cheer wolf if you will, we've got special episodes all over the network just for you. Andrew T. and Tawny Newsom talk to Kulap Vilaysack about holiday racism. On yo, is this racist? On unspooled, take a deep dive into AFI's favorite Christmas movie. It's a Wonderful Life. Off book has not one, not two, but trois holiday-themed musicals for you to indulge in. Surprise. All the special holiday episodes of With Special Guest are out from behind the paywall as a gift to you. Check out a very special Improv for Humans episode, Best of the Bible on Are You Talking R E M R E Me? The Scots talk about R.E.M., every R.E.M. holiday single released, and nothing else. Sean and Hayes hit the slopes with Adam Paley on a very festive episode of Hollywood Handbook. On Beautiful Anonymous, Chris Gethard is taking calls for New Year's resolutions from you. Tune in on Earwolf's Facebook page, December 21st at 2 p.m. Eastern. Marissa and Lister get a special listener call-in with a heartfelt proposal on Womp It Up, followed by the Christmas Tacular released from behind the paywall if that's not enough check out even more special holiday eps from comedy bang bang how did this get made getting curious who charted and freedom happy holidays happy listening and a merry cheer wolf to all hi we're back on obscure and jude has just entered the holy gates at melchester to see his cousin sue bridehead let us continue though she had been here such a short while she was not as he had seen her last all her bounding manner was gone her curves of motion had become subdued lines the screens and subtleties of convention had likewise disappeared yet neither was she quite the woman who had written the letter that summoned him that had plainly been dashed off in an impulse, which second thoughts had somewhat regretted thoughts that were possibly of his recent self-disgrace. Jude was quite overcome with emotion. Oh, Jude. Okay. I got to read him overcome with emotion here. Oh God. And then he starts, he's about to start with a little bit of like self-pity. You don't Think me a demoralized wretch for coming to you as I was and going so shamefully, Sue. Oh, I have tried not to. You said enough to let me know what had caused it. I hope I shall never have any doubt of your worthiness, my poor Jude, and I am glad you have come. Oh, good. All right. No problem. She wore a Murray colored gown with a little, I don't know, M-U-R-R-E-Y. I don't know what that is. Murray sounds like uh, it sounds to me. Murray sounds kind of gray brown. That's what I'm going to say. It is kind of a grayish brown. She wore a Murray colored gown with a little lace collar. It was made quite plain and hung about her slight figure with clinging gracefulness. Her hair, which formerly she had worn according to the custom of the day, was now Twisted up tightly, and she had altogether the air of a woman clipped and pruned by severe discipline, in under brightness shining through from the depths which that discipline had not yet been able to reach. So it sounds like things have been going quite badly for Sue Bridehead. I mean, she said so in the letter, but even before that, we don't quite know the circumstances her of her arrival in Melchester, but since being there, apparently, she has been molded into something that has a lot less sparkle than the thing which Jude Fowley had seen there, illuminating the letters Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. The all, all of the Alleluia has seemed to dimmed. And so we are left with a new Sue Bridehead, somebody a little bit stilled, and what is going to happen between these two people, two people who have been humbled by circumstance, now seeing each other in a slightly diffused light, their brightness now not quite so bright. She had come forward prettily, but Jude felt that she had hardly expected him to kiss her as he was burning to do under other colors than those of cousinship. Yeah, we know, dude. He could not perceive the least sign that Sue regarded him as a lover or ever would do so. Now that she knew the worst of him, even if he had the right to behave as one. And this helped on his growing resolve to tell her of his matrimonial entanglement, which he had put off doing from time to time in sheer dread of losing the bliss of her company. So he hasn't been straight with her. He she does not know about Arabella for the reasons that he just said. If I if I tell her I'm married, she's gonna freak out on me and she's never gonna want a bone. And And now he's saying, well, look, I'm never going to bone her anyway. So, you know, why not just come clean? She came out into the town with him and they walked and talked with tongues centered only on the passing moments. Yeah, because they're both ashamed of their pasts. Something happened with Sue and Phillotson. Something. I don't know if it's pregnancy. I don't know what it is. Something bad happened. I'm telling you, we're going to drag it out of her. You and I both. I mean, maybe we'll just keep reading. That would probably do the trick. Jude said he would like to buy her a little present of some sort. And then she confessed with something of shame that she was dreadfully hungry. They were kept on very short allowances in the college and a dinner, tea and supper all in one was the present she most desired in the world. Jude thereupon took her to an inn and ordered whatever the house afforded, which was not much. The place, however, gave them a delightful opportunity for a -a tête-à-tête, nobody else being in the room, and they talked freely. Oh, so I guess it's not going to be very hard to drag it out of her at all. She told him about the school as it was at that date, and the rough living, and the mixed character of her fellow students gathered together from all parts of the diocese and how she had to get up and work by gaslight in the early morning with all the bitterness of a young person to whom restraint was new.
0: I got a sneeze.
1: <gasps> That's my first sneeze on Obscure, I believe. And it just goes to show you, <laughs> I'm just a guy, you know. Sure, I'm reading Jude the Obscure. And sure, I have important insights into the text, but I'm just a guy. you know? To all this, here yeah, she was just bitching about all the work she has to do. To all this, he listened. But it was not what he wanted, especially, to know. Her relations with Phillotson. That was what she did not tell. When they had sat and eaten, Jude impulsively placed his hand upon hers. Oops. She looked up and smiled. Oh, shit. And took his quite freely into her own little soft one, dividing his fingers and coolly examining them as if they were the fingers of a glove she was purchasing. I mean... This is what Hardy does. A page ago, he was like, no, nothing can ever happen. And then on this page, she's about to purchase him like a pair of gloves. She's getting all up in his chisel. You know, you know what this is going to do to Jude. Your hands are rather rough, Jude, aren't they? She said, yes. So would yours be if they held a mallet and chisel all day? I don't dislike it, you know. I think it's noble to see a man's hands subdued to what he works in. Well, I'm rather glad I came to this training school after all. See how independent I shall be after the two years' training. I shall pass pretty high, I expect, and Mr. Phillotson will use his influence to get me a big school. Okay, so... Suddenly, her mood has changed. She has touched the roughened hands of her cousin and told him how much she likes them, told him how much she likes a man's coarse hands, a man whose hands have been roughened by his trade. And then all of the sudden, the blood returns to her face and she is excited about her prospects for the future. She had touched the subject at last. "'I had a suspicion, a fear,' said Jude, "'that he cared about you rather warmly "'and perhaps wanted to marry you. "'Now, don't be such a silly boy. "'He has said something about it, I expect. "'And if he had, what would it matter, "'an old man like him? "'Oh, come Sue, he's not so very old, "'and I know what I saw him doing. "'Not kissing me, that I'm certain. "'No.' but putting his arm round your waist. Ah, I remember, but I didn't know he was going to. You are wriggling out of it, Sue, and it isn't quite kind. Her ever-sensitive lip began to quiver and her eye to blink at something this reproof was deciding her to say. Okay, so we're coming to the meat of it right now. What happened with Phillotson? She has essentially acknowledged that his arm went around her. And that is scandalous enough, as far as I'm concerned. The hussy. She allowed his arm around her waist. I know you'll be angry if I tell you everything, and that's why I don't want to. I mean, I'm bracing myself. I know you guys are on the edge of your seat. You're, you're, you're probably screaming. Michael, just read it. Just read it. Well, guys, there's such a thing as drawing out the tension. There's such a thing as heightening the suspense. I haven't read it. I'm, ex- I'm, I'm as excited as you all. Very well then, dear, he said soothingly. I have no real right to ask you, and I don't wish to know. So I guess that settles that. She's not going to tell him. And then she says, I shall tell you, <laughs> said she, with the perverseness that was part of her. Yes, we know about Sue's perverseness, don't we? It's our favorite thing about Sue that she's kind of into porn, that she's got a dark side. And she knows, see, this is what I was talking about before. She knows he is a worm wriggling on her hook. This is the argument that I had with Martha a couple episodes ago, that she is fully aware of his feelings for her. And so by telling him whatever happened with Philotson, she is torturing the worm with her perverseness and you know she delights in it herself she delights in being kind of a naughty girl and honestly i delight in it who wants some chaste stuck up uptight girlfriend you know you want somebody whose own predilections bear some resemblance to yours and i'm perverse my her perverseness believe me is not a judgment a negative judgment on my on her on my part to her no, no, I say. I love it. This is what I have done, she's saying. I have promised. I have promised that I will marry him when I come out of the training school two years hence and have got my certificate, his plan being that we shall then take a large double school in a great town, he the boys and I the girls, as married school teachers often do, and make a good income between us. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, boy this is trouble. I mean, a moment ago, she denied that he wanted to marry her. And she said, no, don't be such a silly boy. And now she's saying, well, we're not married, but we're going to get married. He's going to be heartbroken. And he says, because he's a good guy. Oh, Sue. But of course it is right. You couldn't have done better. He glanced at her and their eyes met the reproach in his own belying his words. Then he drew his hand quite away from hers and turned his face in estrangement from her to the window. She regarded him passively without moving. I knew you would be angry, she said, with an air of no emotion whatever. Very well. I am wrong, I suppose. I ought not to let you have come to see me. We had better not meet again and will only correspond at long intervals on purely business matters. I mean, this is just. I mean, she. You know what? Sue, what did. I'm getting exasperated with Sue because she's playing him a little bit like Arabella played him. She's playing off his obvious love for him. She has hooked this worm. And though she does not think anything will come of a relationship between them, she wants him to love her. She just does. She is not mature enough to have the kind of relationship that she professes to want which is that of two cousins. No, she's flirting with his hands. You know, you know how hand flirts can be. And she's warm one moment and cold the next. She says, I'm not going to tell you what happened, but I am going to tell you. And when you have the reaction that I knew you were going to have, I'm going to act all pissy about it. Come on, Sue. What she wants from him, I think, in this moment, in this moment where she, where she says, well, I knew you were going to be like that, and I don't think we should meet again. What she wants is for him to make some protestation. What she wants is for him to confess his love, even though she knows it will not be returned. And she says, we'll only correspond at long intervals on purely business matters, as if they had business to attend. They do not. This was just the one thing he would not be able to bear, as she probably knew. That's Thomas Hardy saying that, not me. So now Thomas Hardy is finally conceding that, yeah, she probably gets it. And it brought him round at once. And with that revelation, I think we deserve a moment.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
1: Welcome back to Obscure. I'm Michael Ian Black. And Sue has just told Jude that she's engaged to Mr. Fill it in. No big whoop, right? Okay, I'm going to go on. Oh yes, we will. He said quickly. Your being engaged can make no difference to me, whatever. I have a perfect right to see you when I want to, and I shall. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you don't really have a right to see her when you want. That's not quite. That's not quite the way it works between two people. Uh, but I, but we understand your sentiment, Jude, and we appreciate you putting on a brave face. And good. And so she says, well, then then don't let us talk of it anymore. It is quite spoiling our evening together. What does it matter about what one is going to do two years hence? So, oh, Sue, you're driving me crazy. She's leaving the door open. She's saying, well, who knows? Maybe I'll marry him. Maybe I won't. You know, maybe I'll just keep torturing you. She shouldn't be doing this. He doesn't have the constitution to handle this. All right, I'm going to keep reading a little bit more, but I really should end. She was something of a riddle to him, and he let the subject drift away. Shall we go and sit in the cathedral, he asked, when their meal was finished? Cathedral, yes, though I think I'd rather sit in the railway station, she answered, a remnant of vexation still in her voice. That's the center of the town life now, the cathedral has had its day. How modern you are. So would you if you had lived so much in the Middle Ages as I have done these last few years. The cathedral was a very good place four or five centuries ago, but it is played out now. I am not modern either. I am more ancient than medievalism if you only knew. Jude looked distressed." There. I won't say any more of that, she cried. Only you don't know how bad I am from your point of view, or you wouldn't think so much of me or care whether I was engaged or not. Now there's just time for us to walk round the close. Then I must go in or I shall be locked out for the night. Well, I'll stop there. Those last few paragraphs were quite remarkable. They have told us some things about Sue, about the culture, about her head, and whether it's quite screwed on right. She's saying the cathedral has had its day, this holy life, is now passé and now we turn to the modern life the train station the things of this new frontier this new industrial revolution which has been running like a train through this entire book the death of an old way of life to be replaced by something new something modern something a little bit scary a lot scary i think because all the old ways have fallen away but sue is saying my ways are even older than those and you remember she went and she bought pagan statuary she dipped into some past that precedes even her own religion even her own ancient rites. she's looking backwards further and further back she's looking i think to a kind of i'm gonna say it guys hedonism She wants something more sensual than that which this Victorian age provides. And if he knew, she's saying, if he only knew how bad she was for rejecting not this modern age, or maybe not only this modern age, I'm not modern, she says, I'm not even medieval. I'm something that goes much further back. I'm a druid. I'm a pagan. I'm some fairy flittering about in Middle Earth. She's saying, I don't belong in this time or in the, in the recent past. I belong someplace else in some panatheistic Amazonian realm where women are free to be themselves and to give voice to their own truest desires. But I'm trapped here, here in England, here in Wessex, here in Melchester with you. And I suspect that you, Jude, you have the same spark within you. But I am afraid to confess the fullness of my own desires because you, the one person who I think would understand and perhaps the object of those desires, would see me in my fullness, in my, in my naked desires and reject me. I mean, this is some heady stuff that Sue has just confessed in just a couple paragraphs. Maybe my favorite, favorite paragraphs of the book so far. Who knows what's going to happen two years hence, she says. She's giving herself a two year window here. She's got two years to figure her shit out. But we know that if she takes the road less traveled here, which is to say she spends those two years in Melchester training to be a teacher, but ends up rejecting all of it to lead this other life with or without Jude. We know in a sense it will make her happier. We also know it may spell her doom because there just isn't that path available for women in these times. She's got a lot of hard thinking to do. And maybe she wants Jude by her side as she does it, her cousin, her kin, the one person who might understand. And whether something more develops between these two? Hard to say. I suspect the answer is yes. Well, I'm going to leave it there. A lot to mull over in this episode of Obscure. And Frankly, a lot to be thankful for because the book has now taken an unexpectedly delightful turn, a deeper turn than perhaps we have seen to this point. She's giving voice to the thing that all of us have, that if you really knew who I was, you would hate me because I am not so good after all. Well, none of us are that good. And if we just let our freak flags fly, baby, who knows what would happen? I guess we'll find out in the coming chapters. Tune in next week, guys, to find out what happens with Sue and Jude and Phillotson hovering there in the background, waiting for his betrothed to come to him. You don't want to miss a single word on another exciting episode of Obscure. Until next time, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. I was going to say a thrilling episode, but I'm, I'm humble. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like what you've heard, Take it up with Thomas Hardy. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedgerin. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut.